Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gospel Doctrine Podcast. I'm Mark Holt, your host, and I'm coming to you this week from the iconic Abbey Road Studios in London, England. This is where the Beatles recorded their album, Abbey Road, as well as many other amazing recordings. However, I'm not here in any official capacity. I didn't rent space in the studios. I'm just recording in a side room while a friend is recording the soundtrack to a movie. But I thought it would be fun to record while I was here. Such a memorable and historic place for the recording industry anyway. Today's lesson is lesson number four of the fall. And I'm so grateful to be discussing this lesson. This is the first lesson that I can remember teaching in Gospel Doctrine several years ago, many iterations ago of our four-year curriculum, and a friend whose calling it was to teach Gospel Doctrine asked me if I would substitute for her, and I was excited to do it, but then I thought, if I'm going to teach this lesson, I don't just want to teach what's in the manual and read it and ask the questions that are there and make it simple. I want to have actual personal revelation on the subject. And so I fasted and prayed for a week that I would be prepared to teach the lesson, and I approached it as if it were my right and my entitlement to receive revelation for that lesson. What happened really amazed me. I felt like I had a better understanding of the fall than I had ever had up to that time, and I'm very grateful that I took that opportunity. So if you happen to be one of the teachers listening to this podcast I ch- I extend that challenge to you that you can approach that as if it is your right and your privilege to receive that from God. He will bless you with that, especially if your motives are, are pure, that you want to understand and you want others to understand. And as a scripture along those lines, I would refer you to Alma chapter 40. In this chapter, Alma is writing a letter to his son Corianton, and he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. But the interesting concept for us that I want to communicate to you is in verse 3. He talks a little bit about the resurrection. Then he says, I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth them save God himself. But I show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know. That is concerning the resurrection. So that's verse 3. And then later in verse 9, he says, concerning the space of time, what becometh of the souls of men is the thing which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know. And this is the thing which I do, of which I do know. So we don't need to go into what he said about that. You can read the chapter. The interesting thing is that he wanted to know something eternal. He wanted to know the nature of what happens to, to men between the death and resurrection. He wanted to have the gospel revealed to him. Now, we don't know what is involved in inquiring diligently of the Lord in this particular case, how long it took him. I would imagine it took a long time to have this kind of a revelation. However, he approached it as the prophet, perhaps, or at least as someone worthy of that kind of revelation. Nevertheless, I believe we're all entitled to know what happened, what happens in God's plan. And so it's just one example of how when we inquire diligently of the Lord, we can expect that he will reveal things to us. So I pray that we'll all be able to do that. The fall is something that is very widely misunderstood. It's a doctrine that is unique, as far as I know, to the Latter-day Saints, that the fall was a a positive development in the history of mankind. It's not unique to us. However, it is more rare than not. We believe the fall was a literal event. More and more nowadays, Christian denominations are 
are getting distracted by the belief that the fall was a metaphorical happening. It's meant only as a parable in the Old Testament and not something for us to take literally. As Latter-day Saints, we believe it should be taken literally. There are a number of other misconceptions regarding the fall, and we'll go over several of them, as many of them as I can think of as we, as we discuss the fall. First of all, let's, let's talk about what exactly happened in the fall. Now, we believe that there was a literal man, Adam, a literal woman, Eve. What form the temptation took, we don't know. Was it actually a serpent that they were talking to? Was it Satan who was, as a metaphor, called a serpent? Now, there is where the metaphor may come in. Was Satan literally transforming himself into a talking serpent, or was he a person who was called a serpent? It's interesting to think about. Up until the time of Abraham and beyond, the serpent was a symbol of Christ. And there are many evidences in ancient writings that the serpent was even before the time of Adam, quote-unquote. In other words, uh, a concept that they brought from the previous worlds that God had created, that the serpent was a symbol of Christ in all the worlds. Whatever the case may be there, Satan tried to appear to Eve in a form that would carry with it some sort of trust already. Therefore, he didn't have to work to obtain her trust because he came as a symbol of Christ. In any case, we believe that Adam and Eve literally partook of a fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. Adam and Eve had access to all of the trees of the garden. They were permitted to eat the tree of life, which gave them eternal life. It gave their bodies renewal. And that might have been an aspect of many of the trees of the garden, because we don't know exactly, but it seems it seems to me, and the text seems to imply in both Genesis and in the Pearl of Great Price, that death had not yet come upon the world. So what was it that was giving all of the living things this attribute of immortality? Was it the influence of a, the tree of life that was trickling down through the through the soil, and was it, or just was it simply an aspect of all of the living things that they had not yet been changed, or were they all partaking of the tree of life? If if nobody needed that fruit, then I don't understand the reason that God would put it there. That God would need the tree of life if none of them could die, and so it seems like the tree of life had an important role to fill, which was to maintain the Garden of Eden in this state, sort of in a a state of stasis where nothing would change. And then God did something very interesting. He gave Adam and Eve two contradictory commandments. First and most importantly, multiply and replenish the earth. But secondly, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, Adam went about his day as normal, thinking, yeah, that's easy. He understood very well how to keep the second commandment. The way you don't eat of the fruit is simply not to eat the fruit. And Eve was the first one to realize that these two commandments couldn't actually both be kept. Interestingly enough, her understanding came through her interaction with Satan. Satan explained to her, if you want to know the difference between good and evil, then you need to eat of this fruit. You need to partake of this fruit. And he gave her all the reasons. But the real reason that she did it, I believe, she came to the understanding before she took of the fruit. The only way to keep both commandments, or there is no way to keep both commandments, the only way to multiply and replenish the earth is to partake of the fruit. And therefore, I have to choose. Do I want to break the commandment that God gave us first and most importantly with no conditions attached? Or do I want to transgress the other commandment? And 
accept those consequences as the price of keeping the first commandment. When you understand the fall in that way, it seems like not a sin at all. It seems obvious that the way the brethren have interpreted it and the way that we the prophets have taught it, it seems pretty clear. However, that understanding only comes to us through the Book of Mormon and modern revelation. It doesn't come from the Bible. And in fact, the there this isn't, I wouldn't say the broadest interpretation, but there are those who believe that we are the products of original sin. And that's why they believe in baptizing infants, because we come into this world inherent, inheriting sin. We come into this world as sinners in danger of hell because of the fall, not because of any choice that we made, but because the fall is sin and we're subject to the fall. Now, when Satan spoke to Eve, it's interesting that most of what he said was true. He said to Eve, this fruit is desirable to make one wise. If you want to know good and evil, you need to eat this fruit. There was only a little bit of a lie in there, which is you will not surely die. And the truth is, as soon as they became mortal, Adam and Eve were in a state where they would surely die. But what God said to Adam and Eve when giving them the commandment was, in the day thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. A lot of people have interpreted this in the light of the one day with God is a thousand years to man. And therefore, what God was saying was true in that sense. I'm not 100% sure that that's the correct interpretation, although that may be a valid interpretation. The The truth of that statement for me comes when Adam and Eve are found out. Right as soon as Adam partakes of the fruit, Eve partakes of the fruit, and then she gets Adam to partake. And right as soon as that happens, God shows up. And he says, what are you two doing? Why are you hiding? I'm here to give you further light knowledge. Why, why are you running away from me? Why are you? Who told you you, was, you were naked? Finds out that they've eaten the fruit. And this is when the fall occurs. He says, because you've done this, I'm going to eject you from the garden. You, the earth is going to change. No longer will it bring forth all the wonderful things that you've come to expect. Life is not going to be like it was in the garden. And he says to Eve, I'm going to multiply thy sorrow in thy conception. Some people take that as a punishment to women because Eve was the first to fall. But when I think about that, I think multiply her sorrow from what? Her, she had no conception before the fall. Therefore, all he's going to do is introduce the sorrow of conception. In other words, he's going to give to Eve the gift of motherhood, which she was always destined to receive. Her name means the mother. And he didn't multiply her her sorrow in her conception because she was disobedient, quote-unquote. He gave her the gift that she had paid the price to receive. It seems to me that that's as grand a gift as any gift he gave to Adam. And multiplying thy sorrow in thy conception is simply a way of saying you're going to understand that things have their opposite. Because any woman I talk to who's had a baby, they describe that day of birth as the greatest day of their life, one of the greatest experiences they've ever been through. It's the time when they felt the greatest joy. And it's a painful time for many, for most. However, uh, I've never talked to one of them that said, you know, I wish I'd never done that. They all say, it was the greatest day of my life. It was the time I felt the, the closest to God. And... Obviously, then they love their child that they have to show for it afterwards. And so I think we're misreading that pa- passage when we think about multiplying Eve's sorrow as a punishment for the fall. I think it was a blessing that God gave her as a result of her obedience in keeping the, in paving the way to keep the first commandment. In addition to the story of the fall, which we find in Moses chapters 4 and 5, 
there are two chapters that really illuminate this for us. And because we don't have time to simply read scriptures, I will recommend them to you, but they are indispensable to the understanding of this lesson. The first one, you could even pause and go read them and come back. But the first chapter is Second Nephi chapter 2. And Lehi tells his children about the doctrine of opposites. This is a doctrine that is absolutely central to an understanding of the gospel. And the other chapter is Alma chapter 42. And you could even read the chapters surrounding it. But in Alma chapter 42 is where we get the real meat of this lesson. So first we'll talk about what we learned in Second Nephi chapter 2. And then we'll go on to Alma a little bit later on. What, what happened immediately after the fall? God said to Adam and Eve, he gave them their consequences. You're going to be cast out of the garden, but you're also no longer going to be able to partake of the other fruits of the garden. So life is going to be different. You're going to have to work. He gave Eve the, the consequence or the reward, depending on how you look at it, of multiplying her sorrow and her conception. And then he said, let's put cherubim in a flaming sword to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, the way I read this, this is my opinion, that was what really changed the nature of the earth. The tree of life was the fruit of the tree of life, or the tree of life itself. It was an influence that God placed on the earth to keep a constant renewal. And that's a, that's a concept that I find all over in the gospel, is that we have constantly be renewed by the Spirit. Jesus taught that we have to pray every day for our daily bread. So that's physical renewal. And the Israelites learned when they were eating manna in the wilderness that they depended on God for their physical sustenance. And we're taught for the same reason and often with the same examples that we have to depend on God for our spiritual sustenance. Every day we have to go back to him and constantly be renewed to be reminded of our dependence on him. And so that's why I think the tree of life was instead of a one-time thing where they ate it and lived forever, it was a tree that gave its influence over the whole earth and kept it in a terrestrial state, in a, non, in a non-dying state. And if you were to eat of the fruit, that was just a way of accelerating the process. But more than Adam and Eve were affected by that tree being present, it was the entire garden, and by extension, the whole earth. It was kept in an immortal state, and a probation or a non-probationary state. It was kept in a state where nothing would ever change, as we discussed, a state of stasis. And once that cherubim was placed there, in my opinion, again, these are my interpretations, but it's interesting to think about, that tree was taken away from the earth in the sense that nobody could find it. It was no longer accessible to us through normal means. Now, is it still on our earth? I don't know. We, we know that the spirit world exists and the earth that we live in, except we can't walk there. It's through some sort of veil or barrier. So that's where the tree of life is possibly is on the other side of a barrier we can't see, or maybe he took it away altogether. But that's what cherubim and a flaming sword are. It's a barrier that nobody can cross. However, were that tree's influence to be restored to the earth, it would immediately begin to raise us to a terrestrial state. It would begin to heal our body of its ills. And I believe this is the state Jesus lived in. He overcame the fall gradually during his life. And did he suffer pains and death? Of course, his overcoming of the fall wasn't complete until his resurrection. However, it also didn't begin at the beginning of the atonement. Jesus was constantly overcoming the fall and piercing the veil during his life. He was getting into a state closer and closer to his heavenly father where he could eventually and probably early in his life, I would guess, I don't know, but 
probably before the beginning of his ministry, converse with the Father at will and know the Father's mind in all things. Therefore, he was overcoming the fall constantly for himself and realizing the truth of how he was understanding his role in the plan, understanding the part that he would play eventually in helping all of us. So he was overcoming the fall for himself during his entire life by living a sinless life. And when, at the culmination of his ministry, then he realized there is the need for a proxy sacrifice in order to overcome the fall for anyone else. But he couldn't have done that had he not already overcome the fall for himself. That's the kind of thing that the tree of life was doing. It was overcoming the fall or preventing the fall in that stage of existence. And once Adam and Eve were separated from it, that seems to me to be the mechanism in which the fall occurred, was you're now separated from this tree of life. Interesting to think about. It's not something I've ever heard taught over the pulpit, especially not in general conference. So don't take it as doctrine. However, these kind of things are worth considering, I think, worth thinking about. What means did the Lord use to actually make the fall come to pass? That's one of the possibilities in my mind. The fall was a literal event we read in the Bible Dictionary, and this is a direct quote. Latter-day Revelation supports the biblical account of the fall, showing that it was a historical event that literally occurred in the history of man. This is in contradiction to what most of the Christian world believes. And those who do believe it believe that Adam and Eve committed a grave sin. And because they sinned, we all inherit that sin. Many of them believe, not all, in fact, Eastern Orthodox religions don't believe that we inherit the sin of Adam at all. We don't and, and correctly so, that we're not responsible for the sins of another and that God shall not answer the sins of the parents on the, sins of the, on the heads of the children. But there are those religions that believe not only was the fall a sin that came upon all of us, but that it possibly was even sexual in nature and that Adam and Eve, this, this metaphor of the fruit was actually... Uh, an immorality that Adam and Eve created, and because they discovered sex, they brought this sin into the world, and we're all conceived in sin. Now, I have a hard time imagining a doctrine that would be more helpful in Satan's efforts to undermine the plan of salvation, to believe that God's method of bringing children into the world is at its core sinful, and to associate shame with righteousness. And therefore, to bring more and more shame uh, in, in our world today, sex is probably the biggest thing that Satan uses to bring sin into our lives. And one of the reasons is he can associate it with shame. And if he can have religion's help to do that, then if you're already feeling ashamed when you think about marriage and family, then it's a shorter step to feel the shame of sexual transgression. And that's why a proper understanding of the fall is so important. It's so important to realize that when God said to Adam and Eve, multiply and replenish the earth, he had a means prepared and ordained for them to follow. And it wasn't a sin for them to do that. It was a wonderful gift. And when observed in God's way, it was a fantastic blessing. In Second Nephi chapter 2, Lehi is talking to Jacob his son who was born in the wilderness. And he's saying, I know that you've suffered your whole life because life in the wilderness has been hard. And so then he spends the rest of the chapter talking about why things might be hard and how we can talk about the joy of a plan while we're living such a difficult life. 
So this is a wonderful chapter. It's one of the most amazing chapters in Scripture. It's one of the most profound because a lot of this stuff is obvious to people who are thinking people outside of the church, but never is it expressed to them so clearly and so concisely in Scripture, anywhere but here, that we live in a world of opposites and that those opposites are ordained of God. Now, in verse 11, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11 Lehi says, there needs, it must needs be that there's an opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, holiness or misery, good or bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead. In other words, if there weren't this duality, if there was just one thing, it must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery. And here's an interesting dichotomy, neither sense nor insensibility. And I can't imagine a state of sense, of not having sense nor having insensibility. In other words, consciousness or unconsciousness. Wherefore, it must needs have been created for a thing of not. The only thing that would have neither consciousness nor unconsciousness would be nothing. And that's what he's saying. Wherefore, there would have been no purpose in the end of its creation. Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God. Now that word justice, we're going to come back to. But this concept we also find in Alma 42, the concept that if it weren't for the fact that everything has an opposite, that it would destroy the plan of God. It would, and he takes it, he takes it a little bit farther in the next verse. He says it would destroy, it would destroy God himself. Because if there's no, if there's no righteousness, there's no wickedness, there's no punishment, misery, if these things are not, there is no God. So without the fall, God would not exist because the fall was what brought into the world these opposites, which isn't to say that there weren't opposites in the world before the fall. We don't know exactly what life was like then, but there might have been some opposites. But it seems interesting to think about the fact that Adam and Eve didn't have happiness nor misery. We can't quite comprehend that. Did they? What exactly did the fruit of knowledge of good and evil accomplished for them? Did it bring about happiness and misery? Did they really not feel anything? Were they numb before that? It's hard to say, but it seems to some extent that it was definitely true that a lot of these opposites, sickness and health, for example, they were in perfect health, and yet they didn't know it as health because they never had experienced anything else. And maybe that's what it was. They, they felt happiness, but they couldn't appreciate it or recognize it as such because they'd never felt anything but that. And it's only in feeling misery that you learn to prize the happiness. And Lehi says in verse 15, he says, to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man after he had created our first parents and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and in fine all things which are created, it must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life the one being sweet and the other bitter. Now, this is interesting because the forbidden fruit is described here, if, if the order is the same, the forbidden fruit is described as sweet and the tree of life is described as bitter. If we try to interpret that, we can understand that the, the tree of life, which is the fruit they had been eating all along, it was a bitter fruit. And it wasn't until they took that forbidden fruit that they tasted anything that was sweet. That so what does that mean? It's hard to say exactly, but one guess is that bitterness was all they were ever meant to taste, or they didn't think it was bitter until they tasted something sweet. Did they recognize that it wasn't good to eat? We don't know. 
There's a lot more in this chapter I'd love to read to you, but let me just say again, if you haven't read this, if you want to understand the fall, you need to read the entire chapter, which we won't do. Another thing that it teaches us is that if Adam hadn't transgressed, this is something we don't learn from Genesis or even the Pearl of Great Price. If Adam hadn't transgressed, what would have happened? If he hadn't transgressed, they would have remained in the Garden of Eden. And so in the Christian world at large, and when I was a, a kid, I read a book by C.S. Lewis. He wrote, he, he's well known for the Narnia series, but he's less well known for a science fiction trilogy that he wrote, which begins with Out of the Silent Planet. And I'm not necessarily recommending it. It's actually a little bit boring. But it's about a man who goes on a spaceship to another planet in our solar system. I can't remember if it's Venus or Mars. But when he gets there, he finds a couple very much like Adam and Eve. And he finds a third being, Satan, trying to tempt them. And he realizes that he's visiting another Earth before the fall. And it's his job to prevent the fall from happening. Given his understanding of what's going to happen if they fall, if they eat that fruit... And because he has the benefit of the Bible and the understanding of what will have to happen to Jesus if they fall, then he opposes Satan and he teaches them the right way and they avoid the fall and then they're able to have children and the world moves forward into what we can presume would be another form of existence where there had never been a fall. And that is what at least the the line of Christianity that C.S. Lewis believed in, that's what they believe, is that the fall was a tragedy. And the fact that Christ came into the world was sort of damage control, that God didn't want to have to do that, but that he did it because Adam screwed up so badly. And the way we know that that's not true, the way we know that that's not actually the case, is because we have Second Nephi chapter 2. In verse 23, it says, They would have had no children, wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. A lot of times I've thought in the past when I was trying to understand the fall, what if they just waited a little longer? What if they hadn't tried to take the... What if Eve hadn't so quickly partaken of the fruit as soon as Satan showed up? And after I thought about it for a while and in some of the process of preparing these lessons, I've realized we don't know how long she waited. Satan might have come along and in the in the time frame of heaven, we don't know exactly whether how strictly they were subject to time even by that time. Was that a consequence of the fall, being subject to mortal time? In any case, we don't know if it took her a thousand years by the way we reckon things, or ten thousand years. They might have been there a long time in the garden. They might have resisted until it it, we do know that they resisted as long as it took for Eve to come to this understanding that she realized she wasn't going to be able to have children. And then she partook of the fruit. So she was willing to suffer the consequences of taking of the fruit in order to move the plan forward. And once she explained it to Adam, and especially once Adam faced the prospect of living this half-life that he was living without her, only then was he willing to transgress as well. So a lot of times people call it the fall of Adam, but I think it's more accurate to call it the fall of Adam and Eve because Eve is kind of the architect of us receiving these blessings and being able to move forward from the garden time of the earth into modern existence, into the existence that we know as life. 
Something else that's interesting about the fall is that an understanding of the fall is necessary to have a true understanding of the atonement. And this is this is right from quoted right in the lesson manual, but it's a quote from Ezra Taft Benson. The plan of redemption must start with the account of the fall of Adam. In the words of Moroni, by Adam came the fall of man, and because of the fall of man came Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ came the redemption of man. That was a quote from Mormon 9.12. This is still Ezra Taft Benson. Just as a man does not really desire food until he is hungry, so he does not desire the salvation of Christ until he knows why he needs Christ. No one adequately and properly knows why he needs Christ until he understands and accepts the doctrine of the fall and its effect upon all mankind. Now, that doesn't mean that people have to fully understand, number one, the fall, number two, the Mormon understanding of the fall before they can be taught about Christ. What it means is the more we learn about one, the more we hunger to learn about the other. And especially in chronological order, the more we learn about the fall, the more we want to know about the atonement. One scriptural event that always impressed me was the account of Ammon in the court of King Lamoni. Ammon comes back from slaying all the king's enemies, and he's in front of the king, and the king says, are you, are you the great spirit? The king is in an attitude of being totally receptive to anything that Ammon has to say. And so Ammon gets to choose, how am I going to present the plan of salvation to King Lamoni? And the order that he chooses is interesting. The first thing he says is a little bit about the spirit and a little bit about the fact that he's been called of God. But then the very first thing he says is, Ammon, this is, uh, if you're wanting to follow along, this is in Alma chapter 18, verse 36. Ammon began at the creation of the world and also the creation of Adam and told him, that is Lamoni, all the things concerning the fall of man and rehearsed and laid before him the records and holy scriptures so the first thing he taught about was the creation of the world, creation of Adam, and then the fall. In other words, I'm going to teach you how your spiritual life is broken before I tell you that there's a physician. It's an interesting way of looking at things, and it's also, it stresses the importance of understanding the fall completely. And even though we in the church might have an understanding that we believe surpasses that of the world, it behooves us to understand as much as we can about the fall, knowing that that understanding will give us a hunger to understand the things of Christ and understand the atonement. And I want that hunger. I want to really have a desire to know and believe all the truths of the atonement. And therefore, I want to learn as much as I can about the fall. Now, let's return to what we were talking about in Second Nephi chapter 2, that had Adam not fallen, what would have happened? They would have remained in this garden state forever. And in fact, uh, Lehi uses those words. They must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created. And they must have remained forever and had no end. That takes us directly into Alma chapter 42. Now, I hope you'll open your scriptures and follow along as we discuss this, because this chapter is probably the most crucial in understanding the fall. And, and Alma goes right into it at the start. In verse 2, he says, I will explain unto thee, behold, after the Lord God sent our first parents forth, from the Garden of Eden. So it starts right away talking about the fall and talking about how a cherubim and a, cherubim and a flaming sword were set in place to keep the way of the tree of life. Now Alma describes why that happened. And it was because death was a crucial part of our probationary time. In verse 4 he says, There was a time granted unto man to repent, a probationary time. And just like everything has its opposite, a time 
doesn't exist unless it has an end. And death was set to be the end. And this was the gift. It's interesting because Satan thought that the that death was the punishment for the fall. But in fact, it was a gift. And Alma explains exactly why. In verse 5, he says, If Adam had put forth his hand immediately, partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever, according to the word of God. In other words, God ordained this tree. Had he partaken of that fruit, and there was never a chance he would, God saw the fall and acted immediately to make sure that he couldn't, because he knew that would frustrate his plan. But what Alma's saying is, had he done that, then he would have lived forever, and his probationary time would never have had an end. So Adam chose to begin his probationary time, and God chose to make sure it would have an end. They both chose it together. Adam brought about the state of the world that we know now, the fallen state. God was incapable of bringing about that fallen state because he creates things that are perfect. As we discussed last week, when God looked on all of his creations at the end of every day, That word good means whole, and the word whole in the scriptures, when you see the word perfect, you can know that it means whole. When God was looking at his creations, he didn't just see that they were good. He saw that they were perfect. He had created a perfect world with perfect beings in it, and when he was finished, there was no death. God doesn't create death. What had to happen was Adam had to choose to be in a world of death. Adam had to choose to have a probationary time. And the gift of that probationary time was death, was that that probationary time would have an end. The probationary time was also immediately a place of death. God had promised Adam, in the day thou partakest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He was immediately separated from God and from the garden. And that is spiritual death. We can't understand why the word death is used because we don't understand what it was like to live in the garden and having God as a constant visitor. Nevertheless, anytime you read about somebody who's passed beyond this world and come back, the thing that they almost universally express is, it was hard for me to choose to come back to this world because it was so wonderful there. The sense of joy and fullness was so complete. And often they're not even in the presence of God. They're just in the presence of other spirits and angels that are accompanying them or escorting them. Now, are those stories doctrine, are they necessarily true? Not necessarily, but it's universal enough that it seems we have an immediate return to at least a terrestrial feeling of companionship and and an end to this loneliness and isolation that our souls feel here on earth. And we have a communion, if not with God directly, at least with other spirits like us, and we feel like we've come home. And that's what the fall was the end of. And to have that taken away immediately, this is what I believe the fall was the end of. To have that feeling taken away immediately, this feeling of companionship, especially with God, but possibly with spirits and angels that have been sent to minister to him and to teach him, and maybe even with Eve's spirit. Maybe he could communicate with her on a, on a different level. That would definitely feel like a death, to be sent out of not only the garden where everything is wonderful, there are wonderful animals around, no one is, there's no violence, and food is readily available, there's no need for shelter, and to be put in this world that we live in, where we've got to work for our daily bread, we've got to build a shelter, we've got to worry about storms, animals are killing each other for meat, it's a world of violence and struggle. So not only was Adam appointed a time when he would die as soon as the fall happened, but he immediately began to live a sort of death which was the separation from God. 
And we talk about spiritual death, thinking that's what happens at the end of this life. If we are sinful, then we are separated from God. But we all live in a state of spiritual death that is not complete, but neither is it incomplete. And a lot of times people talk about babies. They say, oh, this baby seemed like he was looking or receiving a visit, looking at a spirit or receiving a visit from angels beyond this earth. And it's only as the baby grows up, it loses the ability to have that communication. And if that's true, it may be true. If that's true, then we come to this earth in a state of partial spiritual death. And as the veil gains more and more control over our minds, as our minds become more and more present in this world, then that death becomes more and more complete. And we can't overcome it by paying attention to the Holy Ghost, but we can't overcome it completely. We are separated to a great extent from our Heavenly Father. And that's the purpose of this life, is to pass through the veil and be on the other side of it and have those things of eternity hidden from us. Now, if we can overcome the veil like the brother of Jared did, then so much the better. God's happier. We've chosen to do that. But for at least a brief time, for the time that is appointed to us, that veil has to be there. And if we can't overcome it in this life, we can at least overcome it at the time of our death. Very few have overcome it in this life. At least Christ overcame it, and the brother of Jared partially overcame it. And we all overcome it every time we feel the Holy Ghost, to some extent. But we're living a life of spiritual death. Now, would that spiritual death become more complete if we were to die without taking advantage of the atonement, without choosing to have Christ intervene for us? Yes, that spiritual death would then become eternal, but it doesn't have to, and we can end it. As soon as the day of judgment comes, we can end that spiritual death, and that is the gift of the atonement, one of the gifts. And like we were saying before, physical death was also a gift. It is the end of the time of our probation, because the time of our probation, spiritual death, we're living that, and if it were to last forever, we'd already be in hell. In verse 7 of Alma chapter 42, Alma says, You see by this that our first parents were cut off, both temporally and spiritually, from the presence of the Lord. And thus we see they became subjects to follow after their own will. And if we skip ahead to verse 11, And now remember, my son, if it were not for the plan of redemption, laying it aside, as soon as they were dead, their souls were miserable, being cut off from the presence of the Lord. But even more so, we see, if we skip back to verse 5, we see, If Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, skip a little bit ahead, the word of God would have been void and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated because he would have had no space for repentance. And by space, he means the time, the time of our earthly life. So that is what Adam bought through the fall was a time to repent. Eve bought the ability, Adam and Eve together, but Eve bought the ability to multiply and replenish the earth, to have children And Adam and Eve together bought the time for us to repent. This is what the fall brought to pass, was that God had created the world and Adam and Eve had created a place where people could come and sin and choose. Now, it's interesting that Satan wanted to destroy the agency of man. In the council in heaven, his entire plan was to force people to do what was right. And the first thing he does on the earth was to tempt Eve to bring about a state where people actually had moral agency. It's interesting to think that he didn't recognize a state of lack of agency when he saw it. He wanted to create a world where we would all be in a place where we couldn't sin. And that's where Adam and Eve were, and he sought to end it. 
so he didn't really care about his plan at all. The only thing he cared about was his role in it. The plan of Satan was being basically followed. It was being enacted. They didn't have the ability to sin. Now, would they have been brought back like he promised to the presence of God and no soul would be lost? Well, they wouldn't have been lost, but they wouldn't have died. They never would have been brought back. And that's about as good as Satan could have hoped for. So had he not done anything, he would have actually gotten what he had been previously arguing for. And we can see by this that he didn't care at all about his plan. What he cared about was his role in it. He wanted to be the most important person. And if he couldn't be the most important person on the side of God, then he wanted to be the most important person against God. And in Moses chapter 4, verse 6, we read, Satan put it into the heart of the serpent. And this is one thing that makes us think maybe Satan and the serpent weren't the same being. Satan put it into the heart of the serpent, for he had drawn away many after him. And he sought also to beguile Eve, for he knew not the mind of God. So Satan so Satan didn't understand the plan of God. He didn't understand that he would be creating the very sort of world that he had tried to avoid, a world where man had moral agency and could choose. This helped him, I suppose, if you think of him as gaining when people succumb to temptation, because it made it possible for people to do that. Uh, obviously, that doesn't actually help Satan, but it, it followed it fell in line with his plans that people could now succumb to temptation. But it also made it possible for them to choose. It gave them their agency. Through the fall, that was the gift. And he didn't understand that. And that teaches us an important truth, which is Satan doesn't see the future. God can not only put thoughts into our hearts, but discern the ones that are already there. God can not only know the past, but know the future. And those are things that are lost to Satan. Satan doesn't understand what's in our minds. He doesn't understand what's coming. He knows the plan of God, but he doesn't know how it's going to be brought to pass. And even though he might have seen similar events in other worlds to the fall, he didn't know enough to avoid it. And that should give us confidence that not only can God frustrate the plan of Satan, but all of us can as well. If we're on the side of God and if we follow the plan of God, God's smarter than Satan. All we have to do is follow that plan as best we can, and we'll always win. One of the biggest lessons in Alma chapter 42 is to understand the word justice. If you look through this chapter and read through it and find all of the places where you see injustice or justice written, you see it a ton. One of the central adjectives that people use to talk about the atonement is merciful. And... So it makes sense that one of the central ways to describe the fall is to talk about justice. Now, I want to teach something very interesting here. And this is my own idea, but the more I learn, the more I think this has got to be true. First, Alma talks about the fall. He talks about the fact that the plan of redemption couldn't be brought about. And then in verse 14, after talking about the fall, Alma says, Thus we see that all mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. That implies to me that before the fall, they weren't in the grasp of justice. Now, it's interesting because we think that justice, being in the grasp of justice, is a negative thing. We think we don't want to be subject to the justice of God, but if you look forward in verse 21, Alma says, If there was no law given, if men sinned, what could justice do, or mercy either? For they would have no claim upon the creature. So, He's saying here, you want to be claimed by justice. 
there is a law given in verse 22 and a punishment affixed. So he talks about how there, if there's no punishment, then there's no law. And if there's no law, then there's no repentance. There's no sin. There's none of this. And God ceaseth to be God. Just the same way that Lehi taught it. In other words, justice is so necessary, and we have to come under the sway of justice just as much as we have to come under the sway of mercy. We already know how mercy claimeth us, and that's through the atonement. And now we learn that justice claims us because of the fall. This is further supported in verses 23 and 24. God God ceaseth not to be God, and mercy claimeth the penitent, and mercy cometh because of the atonement. And in 24 we read, For behold, justice exerciseth all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all which is her own, and thus none but the truly penitent are saved. What, do ye suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. But before we can be come under the sway of mercy, we have to come under the sway of justice. And as we read earlier, it was only after the fall that Alma describes us as being in the grasp of justice. He says, Thus we see that all mankind were fallen and in the grasp of, and in the grasp of justice. Why is all this important? Because we came under the sway of mercy because of a proxy sacrifice, the atonement. And the way we came in the grasp of justice is by the same thing, a proxy sacrifice, the fall. The reason we don't discuss it that way is because we have to accept the atonement. We, we receive it through a priesthood ordinance, which is baptism. And if we will take the name of Christ upon us, then mercy can claim us if we're penitent. We don't have to do anything now to place ourselves within the grasp of justice. We did that already. The fact that we're here on earth means we accepted the fall. And I believe we accepted the fall in the same way that we accept the atonement, by choosing to do it, by being taught, and by making a choice, and then by receiving a priesthood ordinance. The only difference is that that priesthood ordinance would have come in the pre-existence. And that is why the fall is such an important episode in the spiritual history of mankind and why it is so important to the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption, is because it is the first great proxy sacrifice, and we all received it by covenant. And because we made that covenant, we were able to come to earth. Now, Adam and Eve, they didn't receive it in the same way we did. They worked it out. And we watched it happen in the pre-existence, and then we all made that choice. We made the same choice they did, which is we're going to be separated from God. We're willing to fall. We're w- and perhaps, I don't know the form that that ordinance would have taken, but when we are baptized, we are buried in the water in the symbol of Christ's death and brought, brought out of it in the symbol of his resurrection. So perhaps we eat some sort of symbolic fruit. I don't know. It's interesting to think about that we would have a spiritual covenant which would symbolize our acceptance of the fall and all of the consequences that come along with it. We're going to be separated from God. We're going to be subject to the fall in a world that has sickness and death and pain and misery and opposites. It has happiness, and we can learn all of the opposites that we couldn't learn in God's presence. And those learning those opposites is only facilitated by the fact that we have a physical body and we're subject, as we are in this world, to time. Before we came to this world, we couldn't understand what it meant to be impatient because we didn't know what it meant to be patient. We never had to wait for anything. Everything was the same. We're locked into the state that we were in. 
And when things can change, when we can die, when we can get sick, when we can lose, then we can win. And, and Adam and Eve were like Christ in the atonement. They were the ones who worked out this proxy sacrifice on our behalf. And it's important to me to know that because the more I know about the fall, the more hungry, as Ezra Taft Benson put it, the more hungry I will be to learn about the atonement. And if I can learn that the fall is a proxy sacrifice on my behalf that puts me under the grasp of justice, then I can also be hungry to learn more about the mercy of Christ when he worked out the atonement. Now, you may, you may have a different read on Alma chapter 42 than I do, but no matter how you understand it, I hope that you will learn about the fall enough so that you can increase your hunger to learn about the atonement and that you will be motivated to let the covenants that you made at baptism live inside you and that they will motivate you, that the, that, that knowledge will push you to learn more of God and to understand the atonement more, that you will get more out of the sacrament, that you will feel the spirit more often of God and that you will desire to reverse the effects of the fall to the extent that you can in this life, which is feeling the Holy Ghost, which is to feel the closeness of God, which is to end that separation that exists, the spiritual death, and to do it for other people. That's what God does, is he tries to end the spiritual death of all around him by contacting them. And that's what we can do. The more we understand the fall, the more we'll hunger to do that. And I pray that that will be the effect of learning about all of these topics. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to remind my listeners to subscribe to my podcast. You should be able to find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And please, if you're on iTunes, leave us a five-star review. That will help other people to find us as well. Our website is gospeltoctrine.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, my email is gt, as in Gospel Doctrine, gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Until next time.